This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by OmniSend. OmniSend is an e-commerce marketing service, and they're on a mission to make e-commerce accessible to everyone. That means they're making it easier for small and medium-sized businesses to get new customers and start making sales right off the bat. We use OmniSend to pick up the six. I just got done sending out an email blast to our supporters. And so we're very thankful for the ability to do that. Their marketing automation tools take care of those time-consuming and repetitive tasks. Again, I love their platform. It's super intuitive, really easy to use. They have great email templates. And that drag and drop is just so great. You don't have to be a web coder to use it. Anyone with a great idea, an interesting product, and some business sense can now compete with the big guys. Are you ready to start increasing your sales, but not your workload? Visit Omnisend.com and learn more today. Just over one week ago, history was made in Major League Baseball. An all-female broadcast crew called a game, and our guest today is working to ensure it's more commonplace in the future. Her name is Alana Rizzo, and we go back a few years having shared a very small sports office at a TV station in Wichita Falls, Texas. We'll talk about her journey, her love for baseball, dogs, and wine, all on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Alana, it has been too long, but it's really good to see you and talk to you today. What's up? It's so much fun to see you too, Brian. And of course, uh, thanks for having me. Please tell Elizabeth and the girls I said hello. Um, it has been a long time. I remember going to Wichita Falls, Texas in 2004, finally so excited to begin my career on air in sports journalism and walking into that building and being like, what did I just do? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I appreciate all of the steps along the way, but KAUZ in Wichita Falls, Texas was an interesting step to say the least. You mentioned our sports office and it was tiny. And I remember uh, the scorpions on the wall that we had to smash with the massive, massive plastic. Remember those tapes, those mm -hmm. huge we had um the tarantulas in the parking lot yep um the ice that the, off of the tower when yep. this winter storm would come through you were not privy to the moment where early in my career there before i was on air as a production assistant on like my second week of the job they had me remove a rat from the ceiling Oh yeah. That was oh, quite an experience. Yeah. Oh, that, that I, that I heard about. I also remember very distinctly when we were doing Friday night football, because of course that's very, very big right. in Texas, particularly small town, Texas. And we were doing Friday night lights and they took our live truck out to, I want to say Wichita Falls rider, but it was dead. The, mm -hmm. the truck didn't mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. so they had to tow mm -hmm. the live truck to Wichita Falls Rider just to be able to get the microwave signal up, satellite truck up to be able to actually broadcast. Yep. Um, and that was back in the day, you know, when we were all backpack journalists. Now they call us MMJs, multi-journalists. Well, multi right. But it's like we were backpack journalists, one man bands, one woman bands. And, you know, it's funny. I was in Wichita Falls for nine months. It felt like nine years. But honestly, I would never change that experience because you have to go through that stuff, yeah. right? You have to pay your dues. And I still have one of the best friends still to this day in my life. And Megan, at the time, she was Megan Danahay. Now she's Megan Hodge. But she was the chief meteorologist there at KAUZ. And I used to be so jealous because she worked Monday through Friday. She got to go to Johnny Carino's for dinner. She had, yeah. a, she had the money to do it. Remember, I was like, oh, Johnny Carino's. I wish I could afford yeah. to go there. And, um, you know, she had the cush schedule. At least I thought it was at the time. And uh, we're still best of friends today. And now she's a meteorologist in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. She just moved there from St. Louis, Missouri. So, um, you know, it was an interesting, it was an interesting spot in the journey, my first real one, but it was the building block to what was to come. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I look back on those years, those lean years, when you left the TV station, I was unable to move from a sports reporter job to a weekend sports anchor job. And the news director came to me and said, Brian, I got great news. We're going to elevate you up. I said, this is awesome. It's like, we're going to pay you 16 grand a year. <laughs> I was like, I'll take it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you do, and you do take it. And that's what I was making. I was making 15,000 yeah. a year, 15,800 a year rather. Oh, I might've gotten a little, uh, maybe I, yeah. I how did you get a raise by the way? <laughs> no, but 15, good for you. It must be that equal pay wasn't happening in back in 2004, maybe. but yeah. or 2005, whenever the heck it was, but you know, 
I remember going down there and I was actually supposed to go, truth be told, I was supposed to work at the competitor across the street in KFDX. news. KFDX. Yes, KFDX and news. But on the way down there, I found out that there was a sports opening thanks to Josh Blumenfeld, who uh-huh. was in yep. the weather department as well as the news department. And we went to college together. He's like, Alana, there's a sports opening at KUZ. And thankfully, I hadn't signed my contract yet at KFDX. Nice. So I ended up going into sports. Uh, KFDX was not happy with me, but that's fine. I always wanted to be in sports. I didn't want right. to go, but I, you know, I was trying to get my foot in the door, get in the business and, you know, nine months there. And I actually went into myself and Megan Danahay put together this whole plot of how I was going to go in and ask for a raise. Cause I literally had to make a choice between putting gas in my car to get to work or eating. And that's no BS. Like I'm not making this up. No, I didn't have anybody to help me in this, that, and the other thing. So we were put together, we concocted this whole plan of how I was going to go in there and ask for a raise. Right. Well, my math isn't great. And thank God Megan's good at weather and I'm good at sports because I ended up asking for a 60% raise instead of a 6% raise. And they kind of just laughed at me and they gave me like a quarter an hour raise. I'm like, oh, great. I get, I get to make an extra, you know, five bucks a day. Thanks. So, but you know what? It's part of it. And again, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. I hear you. Uh, we'll close the loop on those extraordinary times there with this, uh, met my wife there, right. Married still to this day. We've got two great little kids. We fell in love over hot and ready pizzas and a (laughs) bottle of yellowtail because that was about (laughs) it. Right. Five bucks for the pizza. Yep. Seven or eight bucks for the yellowtail. If I had a few extra dollars, I could grab one of those little flower things, you know, from the grocery store. Yeah. You know what, what I, one, one of my greatest memories of living in Wichita Falls too, actually, when our photo all shoot. of us were together for New shoot. Year's Eve, and we had this like New Year's Eve party in the clubhouse of my old apartment, and several of us lived there. Yeah, right? we, like, I lived there a lot too. of people that. Yeah, there's not a lot of people that could live there based on like what we made. Like we all kind of lived in the same spot, right? So we had the New Year's Eve party in that clubhouse, and I'll never forget. Tim McGraw's Live Like You Were Dying was like the song at the time. Mm-hmm. And all of us like singing it at the top of our lungs. That's one of my favorite memories. Every time I hear that song, I think of that moment. And also I'm deathly allergic to cats, but for whatever reason, there was a cat that just like hung out outside my door. So I would feed the cat before I fed myself to make sure the cat ate. And I called the cat Wichita after Wichita <laughs> Falls. And I hope, you know, God, I hope that cat's you know, maybe he's still with us. I mean, cats right. live longer than dogs. Right. I don't know, but those are two of my, two of my fondest memories of that spot. I'll never forget our photo shoot <laughs> for God, the local newspaper. You're going to probably have to pay me off to not oh. on social media. When we post this episode, show those photos. Cause it, oh. you know, my hair. What what were we doing? And then it they gave all us bad. all the polos, right? But it's all like the polos, all the cargo and shorts. Or, and fine, like you guys are men. So those polo, like not a woman on this planet looks good in a polo shirt. So I'm, those in this, ones. I'm on the, in this pole that's five times too big for me. My hair was atrocious. I had no idea how to do hair, how to do makeup. I'm wearing these ugly cargo shorts. Oh my goodness. Yeah. At yeah. the, yeah, at the field goal post on the, at the football stadium, that's, I don't even know if it was at Midwestern State or where it was. No, we, were over at, we were over at that ISD stadium where they had all the high school kids play there and MSU played there as well. Oh, it was that big Texas so, stadium. So, I mean, it's that so what you bad. would expect to see. It was all the polos, all the cargo shorts. Yeah, it was oh, something. That was quite an so experience. Bad. Yeah, that's a, that's a memory, but I'm going to go ahead and bury that one again. So it's funny, the way that fate kind of twists in that moment, you never know the way the journey ends up playing out as it relates to sports broadcasting, but it falls in place for you then. And it's become this really incredible career that's led you to a lot of different places, Colorado covering the Rockies, in Los Angeles covering the Dodgers, working for the Major League Baseball Network. I mean, it's pretty incredible. How often do you think back to how that all played out and, and, and where it's led you today? I think, you know, and you're the same way. And I think your upbringing was the same where you're a very competitive person and it's always kind of like the next thing and you want to be the best at everything you do. And I don't think you ever stop and think about, wow, look at all I've done. I think I do it more at the end of the season or, you know, now that I've actually taken a step back and I've taken a job in which I have a lot more work-life balance, I finally start to put into perspective 
you know, what a career it's been. And, you know, hopefully there's there's more years to come. But I think it's so diff- I liken it to Major League Baseball and that it's so difficult to make the show. It's even harder to stay. And, you know, I think getting in journalism, there's so many young men and women that want to do this, but they don't understand the sacrifice and the challenges that come with it. And they tend to see the final product and where you are at during your end game, but they don't see all, they don't see the Wichita Falls, Texas's of the world. You know, they don't see the Minot North Dakotas or mm-hmm. the Yuma, Arizona's or the Bangor Maine's. They just see the LA's, the New York's, the all-star games, world series, Super Bowls, those types of things. So I do have an appreciation of um, the career so far. I have more of an appreciation of the fact that, you know, this was my second career. I didn't go back to school to get a master's in journalism until I was 28. I mean, I don't even think you're 40 yet, you know, and I, here I am about to be 46. Just, just ticked so, it, just ticked yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, it's like I went back to school late and mm-hmm. there's never, it's never too late to go back and kind of follow your dream. And when I went to school, I didn't even know what a beat was. I I didn't know what a baseball beat was or a crime beat or the education beat. So I had a lot to learn. And um, I've been very, I've worked very, very hard to get where I'm at, but I've also been very fortunate along the way too. So I do, I do appreciate where I've come, but I still hopefully, you know, hopefully think there's a long way to go as well. There's something in there about taking those chances on yourself too, and, and being willing to put yourself out there in those moments. You know, and our journeys were different, but I graduated from college with no television experience whatsoever. This idea of, I want to start off and be a broadcaster, but I was like, I'm just going to go to this TV station, get whatever job I can. And then just try to keep working and keep working at it and keep working at it. As you go through that process, right. As you get to this career of, of covering baseball at the, at the in-depth level that you have and been a part of these incredibly long seasons, again, in Colorado and in Los Angeles, a world series as part of your resume in your time covering the Dodgers. What is that grind like covering a full baseball season? You know, I, it's the, one of the most difficult schedules you can do as a sports journalist. And while I love it, I, I mean, it was amazing. And I've had so many opportunities because of it. Like Sammy Sosa used to say, baseball has been very, very good to me. It really has been baseball has been amazing to me. And to think I didn't even want to cover baseball in the beginning. Um, you know, it's a it's something to behold to take in a a 200 game season a year because with the Dodgers, both of the teams that I've worked for, um, the Colorado Rockies, I was a network employee with the Rockies. With the Dodgers, I was a team employee. So with the Dodgers for the past seven seasons, I would do every game essentially. So that's yeah, so not just home games, weeks. right? Yeah, no, six weeks of spring training. I would move to Arizona for six weeks. So I basically started with the team on, let's say it always tended to be around Valentine's day. So mid February until with the Dodgers end of October, right? Cause they've been so good for so long that six weeks of spring training, essentially 162 games of the regular season, and then three weeks of postseason. So when it's all said and done, minus a few national games or a couple of off days here and there, I did 200 games a year for a really long time. And, and the travel, it, it's such that it, and thank goodness, I was fortunate enough to be able to travel with them wherever they went instead of having to take commercial flights, which I did have to do in the five years I was covering the Rockies. So to have that grind of a schedule uh, and not to liken what I did to what the players do, but you are still on the same schedule and it's exhausting. And there is no such thing. I always tell base people that want to get into this industry, if you want to have a life, do not get into baseball. And, you know, you miss every single birthday party, graduation, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, Labor Day, um, any, you know, concert, any anything like that. You, you can't do it. You can't do it. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining because the job's amazing, but there are sacrifices and people need to understand that, you know, it's not just all glamorous. There's a lot of of challenges with the schedule. I think that's the most difficult thing about the job was the schedule. And, um, you know, it's just, you have to be, you have to train yourself. The first year was really, really hard. When I started with the Rockies, I was like, Oh my gosh, how many games, you know, how many games do they play? And the team would already be in the next city. And I was barely taking off, um, because I had to fly commercial. So it's a, it's an insane schedule, but also a job that's incredibly rewarding too, especially uh, when you cap it off with the world series ring. It's not a bad way to look at it. I want to talk about a couple of, you got plenty of folks you could talk about a couple of Dodgers that people have heard of. We're going to talk about them, but I get a sense too, along the way that 
it does set up for the potential to develop some pretty cool relationships along the way, though. So how about some mentors? There's got to be folks along this journey as you're figuring this thing out and navigating it that you've leaned on. Who, who helped you throughout that process? You know, I think first and foremost, it's important to bet on yourself. And that's why I went back to school and, and chose to go into this and, and taking a risk on yourself. You can't lose if you bet on yourself. I think, you know, I found more mentors now, I think, as I've gotten older in this business than I did prior to when I when I first joined, because I just didn't know anything. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the industry that I've certainly admired and looked up to, you know, both male and female. I, I, you know, the Linda Cones of the world, Susie Colbers. But I think Mike Tirico is probably he's probably my favorite broadcaster in terms of just his style and his ability. Always good. Always always good. He never makes always good. I've never seen the man make a mistake ever, ever. Yep. Um, He's just solid. You know, he's just solid and professional. And there's a lot of people that I admire. um, But I think what has changed over the course of the years is who I lean on more for the like, Okay, I'm going to tell you this to make sure I'm not going crazy. And there's, you know, there's like six or seven of us women um, sideline reporters, uh, although I'm not a sideline reporter really anymore, but six or seven of us on a thread of women that I greatly admire that we just bounce ideas off of one another. And, you know, it's it's sideline reporters from both the American League and the National League, and we're all very good friends. And, you know, we're all at different stages of our lives, but we have also done this job about the same amount of time. And, you know, we just laugh and, and send us send each other stupid messages that that fans will send us that you're just like, come on, people like what, what are you doing? Or, you know, just talking about the industry or talking about life or talking about what it's like to be a mom in this industry and trying to, you know, be superwoman, which I don't have children of my own. But like a lot of my friends do and they're still trying to do everything they can at work, too. So, um you know, I think that type of stuff changes over the course of the years. And, you know, just as you kind of navigate towards life and try to find a balance. One thing I would recommend for young journalists, and I didn't do this when I was younger, is I was so afraid to be exposed or or make it seem like I didn't know something that I didn't ask questions. And who's going to know better about the game about pitching than Oral Hershiser? Who's going to know more about hitting than Nomar Garcia Parra, who, you know, won the batting title several times, you know, six time all-star who's going to know more about um, broadcasting than Vin Scully. Who's going to know more about, you know, what it takes to make it through all these different seasons than, than the men I worked with in the industry. You know, I worked with George Frazier and, and Jeff Houston in Colorado. I worked with so many amazing people in, in Los Angeles. And I finally got to the point where I was like, listen, I know I know what I'm talking about. I'm good at my job. I'm never going to know everything they know because I didn't play. Like you just can't. So I finally figured out that, you know what, it's all right to, to ask questions and, and find your knowledge that way and, and really reach out to the people around you to, to help you get better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liken it to being sort of petrified in that moment if you don't know something. I'm like, you just disavow yourself of that notion and move on because it's only going to help you in the long time. She's a seven-time Emmy Award winner. Well done. Awesome work. All right, tell me a little bit about what it's like being in and around the booth with a legend like Vin Scully. Oh, my gosh. He's as kind of a human being as you think he is. He's as wonderful as a man as you uh, believe him to be. Um He's kind, he's gracious. His memory is ridiculous. The stuff that he remembers, the dates where he was, the conversations, I mean, verbatim of stuff that that he's done. Um, He's just a sweetheart of of a human being, you know, and he is a generational talent that, you know, people that their grandkids have listened to him, you know, they listen to him also. When you're in the booth by yourself, essentially for 67 years, I mean, he becomes part of your family and he's woven into the fabric of your life and of your family and of the sport. So, you know, when Vin retired a few years ago, it was just so different for people. And it was such like a jarring thing, but I I do give Joe Davis a tremendous amount of credit. He never tried to be Vin and I, you can't be Vin. There will never be another Vin Scully. And I think if you talk about the Mount Rushmore of Dodgers, you know, Vince Gully's up there and yeah. you're putting him up there with, you know, the Sandy Koufaxes, you're putting him up there with players. Yeah. So it's just a, a tremendous compliment to Vin that 
he is genuinely as kind of a human being as he comes across on the airwaves and, you know, back in the day on the transistor radios and nobody can tell a story better while weaving in, you know, the scores of six different games all at once while telling you what's happening, you know, now back to this one. I mean, he's just, he's just a gem of a human being. Um, he's a, he's a national treasure and he really is. He really is the Dodgers. If, if yeah. you think about it, there's a beautiful romance that is baseball broadcasting. Unlike any other sport in golf, they can do it a little bit with the ability to talk and weave through a story. I think the duration of the amount of time in between action sets up that way, but there's nothing like that, like a Jack Buck, like a Vin Scully, like their ability to reach through that radio at the Mm -hmm. time and be in your home. Um, It is, it is a magical thing. And it's also magical to think about, there are thousands, if not millions of people who still consume the sport that way. You know, there are those diehard Cardinal fans in St. Louis that will listen to a game like that. I think arguably the best baseball city in the country in their love for it. And that's where Jack broadcast for years. There is an incredible romanticism, I think, to the way that they're able to do that. What's also cool about folks like that, people like him is he probably taught you a lot about broadcasting, but he left a legacy in the way that he lived his life. Mm-hmm. the way that you then try to live your life too. And and there's something pretty important in that legacy piece. Cause the first thing you said about him was he's the nicest man you've ever met. It wasn't, he's the best broadcaster, which by the way, he's pretty damn good. Yeah. I mean, he is, he's just something that he, he just is like a warm hug mm-hmm. on the air. You know what I mean? I mean, this yep. is a guy that can tell a story like no other. And, you know, I, I live in Massachusetts now and I was walking our dog the other day and it was this beautiful, beautiful sky. And I was like a cotton candy sky. You know, that's Vin. That's yeah. Vin. And yeah. and he paints a picture like nobody you've ever seen. And to be able to, you know how hard, I mean, you're in broadcasting, you know how hard it is to carry a four hour game by yourself and just to, to be able to again, to paint a picture, picture, but to go back and tell stories from 30 years ago, or this time, you know, Jackie and I were having, you know, it's like, I mean, the man knows everybody and the way that he's able just to make stories from 40 years ago, relevant to today's time. And, you know, people get used to hearing somebody and it was, it was tough when Vin retired. I mean, people were sobbing at his last game, you know, and, I remember that was the the Charlie Culberson walk-off home run um, after Corey Seager hit a home run to tie the game. Charlie Culberson walked it off. The Dodgers clinched a postseason spot, which they were going to anyway, but they clinched a postseason spot. And then everybody came. I interviewed Dave Roberts on the field. Then Dave like looked up to the booth and kind of tipped his cap, took the mic. We all the players acknowledged Vin. And the, the stadium was packed and it was, you know, it's ninth inning and the game, whatever. Yeah. Everyone, everyone says what they want about Dodger fans, but the stadium was packed and people were sobbing. Mm. And this is a guy that a lot of people have never met, but he's come into your home for six decades, yep. you know, and, and people felt like he was their grandfather or he was their father. And um, he is, there will never be anybody like him. There will never be another broadcast like one that Vin did. In the words, in the words of James Earl Jones, baseball, Ray, yeah. <laughs> baseball is pretty yeah. special. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about uh, the late, great Tommy Lasorda and that relationship, getting to know him. Now, Tommy's a character. And it, what's crazy is that before Tommy passed, um, Tommy and Vin are the exact same age and they could not be more Polar opposites. Polar opposites. Tommy's a character. He'll never pay for a meal anywhere. Um, not that he has to in Los Angeles, but he's just everything you'd expect about a feisty Italian, old Italian man that's like loves baseball, lived for baseball, did everything in the world he could for baseball. Um, literally, if he didn't have Dodger baseball, I think Tommy would have passed a lot sooner than he did. He just adored it. And there was nothing more other aside from his family, obviously his wife, Joe and their daughter uh, and his granddaughter, there's nothing more important to Tommy. And some would argue baseball was more important to Tommy. Um, You know, there's just nothing more important to him than the Dodgers. And, you know, you know, blue heaven on earth is, is Tommy's saying, and, you know, just how feisty he was and, and how much it mattered to him. And, you know, it's crazy too, because his playing career, I don't know if a lot of people know this, I'm sure you do if you're a baseball fan, but his playing career ended when, um, I can't remember if he got hurt, but they basically called up Sandy Koufax 
And that was it. And Tommy, Tommy Lasorda's pitching career was done after that. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, obviously Sandy's a hall of fame pitcher mm-hmm. and Tommy Lasorda is a hall of fame manager. So they mm-hmm. obviously did things the right way, but, um, he's a character boy and I, I'll never forget, you know, everybody wants to meet Tommy and he, listen, he loves the attention too. So he'd come to games. I remember we were in Chicago playing the Cubs and to where Tommy sat at Wrigley was right behind the camera well where I sat and he was very protective of me and he would always say you're very good for a girl which coming from Tommy who at the time he passed was 93 like you're going to yeah. take that like people sure. that age are not going to change right I took that as a compliment because it's Tommy Lasorda and he loves baseball I wouldn't take that as a compliment now to someone that's my age however Tommy's like, you're really good for a girl. I was talking to my wife, Joe, about you. She says the same thing. But Tommy would sit right behind me and he was very protective of me, like all the other camera guys around there or whatever, almost like I was his daughter. And there, you know, there'd be people coming down and wanting to get autographs and stuff. And he loved that stuff. He ate it up, but he did have a handler at the time because he was getting, I always was so afraid that there was going to be a line drive foul ball coming over my head and hitting Tommy. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what if I don't catch the ball? And I'm the reason that something happens to Tommy, but people would come down and try to get autographs and he would do it and he would take photos, but you better make sure you say, please. And you say, thank you. Oh, and he'd let you know. Lasorda didn't hear that, especially from kids. He's like, dude, don't you understand that you need to say please and thank you? And then he would take a picture and he, but that was just Tommy. Like he did, you know, he expected a certain level of respect and, um, you know, to treat your elders a certain way, which I, I come from that same cloth. I too am Italian. Um, I get that. Um, but Tommy was just funny about it, you know, and every time he was eating something, it was all over his shirt. He'd fall asleep at games in his older, his, you know, his, his later years. Um, but there's nothing like having Tommy Lasorda at the ballpark and there's nothing like seeing him at Camelback Ranch in Arizona during spring training and riding the golf cart all over the place and people like falling all over themselves to see him. And, you know, he's, he's a fixture in the organization. I mean, that's another guy that has been with this organization for decades. Mm-hmm. So when we lost him, that was, they had a private ceremony at Dodger stadium and had the casket there and stuff. And a lot of his former players, um, you know, were pallbearers and he was Dodger stadium. He was blue heaven on earth. Yeah. It reminds me, my grandfather used to wear a sweatshirt that said, not only am I perfect, I'm Italian too. Oh, yeah. Uh, We got got a lot of uh, of papas like that, don't we? Listening to Frank Sinatra my way every step of the way and and, uh, doing what they're. Oh, here's a funny Frank Sinatra story really quick. Yeah, do it. I love it. Tommy Lasorda, obviously, he and Frank Sinatra were incredibly, incredibly good friends. So Ned Coletti, who was the former general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, a tremendous amount of success for the Dodgers, he used to be with the Giants, but Ned retired or there was a new regime that came in uh, front office regime, but then he was a consultant and he also was on our, our television network. So he would tell us, and Ned is one of my dearest friends and he's an unbelievable storyteller. He has a great book called The Big Chair, Unbelievable Storyteller. So he did tell us a story one time about how Ned was the one that told Tommy that Frank Sinatra was actually a Giants fan, which is true because Frank was a Giants fan back in the New York Giants. Sure, sure. And of course, being in Hollywood and, you know, being in LA, he's got to be a Dodger guy. You're at the games, you're, you know, you're being seen when the Brooklyn Dodgers came to LA, this, that, and the other thing. But in his heart of hearts, Frank Sinatra was a Giant fan. So when Ned actually told Tommy that, first of all, there's a lot of expletives that I cannot use on this program that Tommy was just infuriated and he wouldn't talk to Ned for quite some time. So, um, it wasn't Ned's fault. No, it wasn't, but you don't tell Tommy that you don't tell Tommy that Frank Sinatra is a giant because I mean, obviously Frank at that point had passed and whatever, but I mean, he was upset about that. I can only imagine man to be a fly on the wall. Like uh, if the Dodgers are playing at the Cubs and Sinatra has, happens to be in town, they end up at Gene and Giorgetti's eating steak <laughs> in the morning. Like, oh my God, that'd be incredible. Yeah, I can only imagine uh, sitting at that table and listening yeah. to some of these conversations. Yeah, for sure. History made a week ago, my friend, as the first all-female crew calls a Major League Baseball game. Uh, so take me back to July 20th. Uh, we don't need to talk too much about the game. Tampa Bay Rays do beat the Baltimore Orioles 9-3 
on that one. Uh, how does this all come about? You've got this incredible team, right? Who, who don't traditionally work together as an entire broadcast crew. You guys are in all these different places. How does this all end up kind of coming to be? It was so funny. I didn't even know it was an all-female broadcast until about three days before the game. They just asked me about a month ago. They said, can you do the game? Can you report at the game Rays and Orioles, or excuse me, Orioles at Rays in Tampa? I said, sure, whatever. Sure. Yeah. So um, I didn't know until our PR department said, can I get a quote from you? And I'm like, why? Why are you, why do you need a quote for Rays at, you know, Rays at Orioles or whatever it was, Orioles at Rays? And, and they're like, no, 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 it's the first all-female bra. I was like, Oh, oh, cool. Okay, great. So I have to tell you that it was the most well-received, engaged interest I have had of anything I have ever done. We received more interview requests for this event than anything I've ever done. We were on the NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. We were on the Today Show with Hoda Kotb. We were on SportsCenter with Hannah Storm. We all had our own individual requests that were being done. Um, you know, our hometown television stations and newspapers were incredibly interested in it. So many different media outlets. So the the reception was great. What I hope is that it's not just a one and done thing. And the great Susan Waldman, who has done Yankees radio with John Sterling for decades, was like, if it's one and done, what's the point? And she's absolutely right. So I'm hoping that while I do recognize the moment, and I think we need to recognize the moment, what the five of us are hoping is that this just becomes commonplace. And we were the five that were fortunately selected to do it just because it worked out that way based on who our employers were at the time. But there's so many unbelievably qualified and talented women that could have easily been the next five or whatever. There's a lot of women out there doing this. And for the five of us, this is, we were just going to work. The easiest part of that day was the game. The craziness was all of the interview requests and just being pulled in so many different directions, which we're delighted about. We wanted people to, you know, get to know our story and, and listen to what we had to say. But Budweiser did an ad, you know, um, it was it was incredible. Major League Baseball did this whole ad and it was great. Again, we just want to make sure, though, that people realize that they didn't just throw us together. This isn't yeah. clickbait. We're not the, you know, the next shiny thing like this is what we do for a living. And we've done it really well for a really long time. Well, the fact that two to three days beforehand, it's sort of becoming a thing like you're going to work. You know, we talked before we started recording, you know, and, and I uh, saw an interview the other day, you know, where it's like, well, you never played baseball. Like, how are you? But you know, come on, come on. I said, we're, we're done. Let's be done with that. Yeah, that's my least favorite. To me, that argument is so tired, Brian, because if, if one more person says, well, you didn't play baseball. OK, I understand that. And, and perhaps, perhaps for the color analyst position, I can see that because maybe you pick on pick up on some idiosyncrasies or some tendencies that perhaps you would know if sure. you played. Sure. But for play by play or for reporting or for pre and post. I, I think that is so tired because if you go across the league for the 30 major league teams and you look at the broadcast booth and you look at the play-by-play -play announcer, 27 out of 30 haven't played the game, maybe. Mm -hmm. So I don't that that excuse is tired. I that doesn't matter to me. It doesn't you don't have to play the game to know how to talk about the game. And I mean, and, and you just ask any actual baseball player how difficult it is to go from playing the game to talking about it. You know, how much football did Bill Belichick play? Thank you. Bill Belichick is arguably the greatest football coach to ever take a football field. Did he play right. NFL football? And just because he's a man doesn't mean that he's going to, you know, I don't know. Yep. It's, it's a tired. Well, excuse, but that's always everyone's, you know, the people that don't like it and will never like it. That's always their fallback. And I always say to them, it's like, I hope you don't have daughters or I hope you don't have a mother. Well, I hope uh, you were hatched you you were married or you don't have a sister or an aunt right. or a neighbor. That's a woman because, or, or, or sons that you teach to treat, you know, to have that view in their mind. It's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's unfortunate that people still think that way. As a dad to two little girls, I loved every second of it. Uh, I thought it's incredible. And you're exactly right. It doesn't have to be a one-time deal. Let's keep this thing. Let's keep this thing rolling on for sure. I mean, look at, look at all the incredible work Doris Burke has done. No, she's amazing. Amazing. She's amazing. Right. She does equally or better of a job than many male analysts do. Yeah. I don't, and she never played in the NBA, yep. you know, 
So uh, she's she's tremendously talented and she's tremendously prepared and she's well respected by her male colleagues, which to me says says it all. It's one thing for women to support women. I mean, that's important and there is room for all of us. But when your male counterparts step up and support you, realizing how difficult the job is and that you're just as capable as they are, that's where I think more strides are made. Where can folks find you now as it relates to work with the MLB network? What do you have going on? Yeah, so I'm a contributor on High Heat with Christopher Russo. So everybody knows Mad Dog. He's been in the New York market for a billion years. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, you know, obviously Mike and the Mad Dog uh, with Mike Francesa. Now he still has, of course, his Mad Dog Sports Radio. I mean, he's all over the place. So High Heat is his show. People are like, oh, my God, she's pushing him out. I'm like, no one on the planet is going to push Chris Russo out. But people, again, are having a hard time seeing Chris with me. You know, it's like it takes some time. We've been together about five months now. He could not be more welcoming and more gracious and more wonderful to me. As much of a character as he is, he's been nothing but awesome. So I contribute on that show whenever, you know, whenever we're on the air, Um so I'm on that MLB network platform. We just were out in Denver for the all-star game. So I'll be doing some of the marquee events. Uh, I'm still reporting. You know, I did that YouTube game. I did a, um, an Orioles and Red Sox game at the beginning of the season. Next week, I get to go back to LA. I'm doing the Angels and Dodgers game. So that'll be a lot of fun to go back to Dodger Stadium. So I just have a very different schedule now. You know, I made the decision to um, leave the Dodgers in February. It was incredibly difficult. I loved working for them. They were nothing but amazing to me. but you know, my fiance is on the East Coast. I was on the West Coast and it just got to be too much. So um, I love the Dodgers. I'm grateful for that opportunity, but it was time to move uh, to the East Coast. Russo and Rizzo's got a nice. Yeah, I, know. Ooh, I right? joked I joked with Chris the other day. I said, why don't we name it Rizzo and Russo? Well, maybe what <laughs> needless to say, that didn't go over very well. <laughs> How good is the home run derby under the timed format? Oh, it's so fun. I really so, so much. It's so much pressure. I just launch so bombs, fellas. Just oh, swing God, away. Especially in Denver, right? Yeah. I mean, that was just like, that was so much fun. And I loved, loved the Trey Mancini story. And, and for mm-hmm. those that don't know Trey Mancini, he, uh, he basically fought and beat colon cancer. And this is a young man. I mean, this is not a guy that you would expect to have colon cancer. So he gives a lot of credit to the Orioles training staff for the early detection and um, he fought it. He beat it. He was, uh, he, he told me at the game, he goes, I was hoping that I wasn't a, uh, you know, a charity pick, if you will. He, I mean, he came in second to the eventual champion in Pete Alonzo. So that's a really, if he's not the lock comeback player of the year yeah. in the AL, I don't know who is. So yeah. that, yeah, the home run derby was a lot of fun. And I love that they get to pick the guys that throw them BP and throw them, you know, throw the balls for the derby and, you know, and to have the teammates down there. And, you know, I don't subscribe to the thought that it's going to screw up your swing, like stop. Mm-hmm. So um, it was fun being in I, back at Denver, which is my hometown. Yeah, Colorado, cool, right? my home state. yeah. So it's where I grew up. And, you know, I thought about you the other day, actually, because I was interviewing longtime MLB closer, Billy Wagner, who was participating in the Appy league first uh, Appy league all-star game, you know, the Appalachian league. And I was like, Oh, Appalachian state. Yeah. Like, I thought about you and all that. And when they beat Michigan and all that, but oh, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the best so, days of all time. Oh, <laughs> I know. I remember hearing about it. I remember hearing about it. But listen, oh, I know what that feels like. Cause when Colorado beat Michigan in the miracle at Michigan, when Cordell Stewart threw that bomb and then Blake. 1997. Anderson, am I right on that? 97. Yeah. That's and it, pretty was, good it was September 26th of 97, I believe. Cause I was in Boulder screaming my head off Yeah. and Cordell Stewart, Blake Anderson tipped it into Michael Westbrook's uh, hands in the end zone. And I, and Boulder lost its collective mind. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Slash. Yeah. That was yeah. a pretty good pull on the year. I'm happy I, I was able to pull that <laughs> out. Uh, there's an amazing video that I still go back and watch every now and then of fans. And I swear, I think it's at Penn State. And they're all in the concession stand area. And they watch the end of the game where App blocks the kick against Michigan. And they're freaking out. Oh, my God. It's, right? Because everybody's oh, so happy. That, that Every, yeah, of course. Unless you're Michigan, everyone's thrilled about it. So we talked about some life lessons learned from Vince Scully. Right. And, and giving things away, right. Just being that incredible human. I know you've been really involved a lot. I mean, through really your entire career, since I've known you with a real care for animals, I want to talk a little bit about what you do through Gidry's guardians and just what that is. And, and I know you're such an advocate 
for abandoned, sheltered animals, dogs specifically. So I want yeah, our listeners just to know a little bit about that work you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love having the platform to talk about this. I appreciate the time. So Gidry's Guardian Foundation is my nonprofit that I launched July 4th of 2019. And it's named after Gidry, who was the first dog I adopted back in 2009 from the Humane Society of Boulder Valley in Boulder, Colorado. And Gidry um, ironically passed away two weeks after I launched the foundation, but in his name and in his honor, I have, we have helped, um, more than 150 dogs find forever homes. And unfortunately we live in a very disposable society where people just assume that, you know, they can throw away their dogs as if they are garbage. And unfortunately in very large cities like Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, Dallas, Boston to a certain extent, um, and, and in the south part, south region of our country, dogs are thrown away um, and discarded as if they are nothing. There are over 600,000 dogs a year that get euthanized in shelters just based on overcrowding. These are capable, healthy dogs that get killed. So the purpose of Yidri's Guardian Foundation is to raise money to get dogs off of the streets and out of high kill shelters to um, support their medical needs, to get them healthy, um, take care of neutering and spay, um, foster supplies, adoption fees, to place them in forever homes. And, and just adopting Gidry, I didn't grow up with dogs. I wasn't a dog person per se. I just knew I was allergic to cats. But um, adopting him absolutely changed my world. And it just really gave me a heart and a soul I didn't know I had. And it's just putting something above yourself. I knew that I never wanted kids of my own. Um, but he is my child. He was my child. And through him, I've just uh, started this foundation. It's 100% donation based. It's just me. So we, I just try to fundraise as much as I can. Um, and thankfully, because of the real job I have, uh, the platform of being the Dodgers reporter for so long and just being on, you know, now on national TV and just having this platform, you know, our community is very generous and that's what we, we live on donations. So um, you can find us at Gidry's Guardian um, on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Instagram. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can continue to save as the, the unfortunately, the um, demand is always going to be more than the resource. But, you know, I, I'll save as many as I can in, in his name. And, you know, one good thing about the pandemic was I wasn't traveling with the Dodgers, which I had done you know, the prior seven years. And um, I was able to foster a dog at the time. Her name was Sasha. And I was fostering her because I was home and I knew she wasn't going anywhere and she's mine now and she got adopted. So I've had her for about a year. So, um, so Bentley is her name now. And, um, you know, Bentley came because of Gidry. So yeah. that's the that's foundation. Um, what have you learned in the process of that? I mean, standing up a nonprofit, getting all that stuff going, it's not easy work. No, um, it's, it's not, it's not easy. And I, and I have a, a, a administrative arm. I don't have a staff. It's literally just me, but I do have an administrative arm called players philanthropy fund, um, which was started actually by Matt Stover, the former Baltimore Raven. And he hit the whole point is to help be the, the back seller, if you will, to foundations. So they like, they take care of taxes and that type of administrative stuff. Cause who has time and who knows how to do that? Yeah, not Yeah. So it's been eye-opening um, in terms of how difficult it is to get things off the ground. It's very difficult to fundraise because there is a thing called donor fatigue. And I don't have any sort of philanthropy experience. I don't have, I don't have a staff. So it's basically just me begging for people to donate. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I try to think about it. If I left LA better than I found it, or if I leave Massachusetts better than I found it, and if I can help as many dogs as possible, then, you know, that's 150 more dogs that have homes that didn't before we started this. So yep. um, it's rewarding, but it's gut-wrenching at the same time. And you're almost playing God in the sense of, you know, who are you going to help and how are we going to do this? And, you know, I've seen some absolute horror stories turn into some really, really cool things. And we've, you know, we've had dogs that have been hit and run and left for dead on, you know, the, you know, the 105 by yeah. University of Southern California. And now that dog is living on a winery in Napa. Um, you know, we've, we've had some really amazing um, before and afters. So it's incredibly rewarding. Um, and that if, if nothing else, Gidry opened my eyes to that. 
Yeah, that's pretty amazing the way that works out. Tell me uh, where they can find it one more time, website and all that stuff where folks yeah, can donate. Yeah, thank they want you. To. It's, um, and Guidry is named after Ron Guidry, the former um, left-handed pitcher of the New York Yankees, who I had an opportunity to interview a couple of times. And I told him that he's like, you named your dog after me? And I was like, well, no, 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 no. I named my dog after you, but I also named the foundation. Right. He's like, oh, okay. I think he was kind of insulted that I named right. my dog after him. But it's guidrysguardian.org. So it's G-U-I-D-R-Y-S guardian.org. And on Instagram, we're at Guidry's Guardian. On Twitter, we are at Guidry's Guardian. And then Facebook is Guidry's Guardian Foundation. Awesome. All right. I want to talk about wine. But let me go back to baseball for a moment. Did you call any games? You called games during the pandemic, right? Were you calling games from your quarantined uh, location? What was that like? Yeah, I was in a suite at Dodger Stadium the entire time. So even if the team was on the road, um, we were still in Los Angeles calling games off of a monitor. So that was really interesting. And what was really weird is when the postseason started to happen, they had American League teams working out at Dodger Stadium while we, like the Dodgers, yeah. were in Texas. Yeah. So it's like you yeah. see, I, I don't even remember who it was at this point, but like you see, you know, the American League team on our field when we're away. So it was bizarre. And I, it was so much harder, obviously, for Joe Davis and Oral Hershiser to have to do it because they're literally calling the action and they're calling it off of monitors. But what was so strange is at the end of a game when the team was on the road, Dodger Stadium was pitch black. And the only lights in the place were the broadcast booths that were occupied by either us and and joe and oral we weren't together so they were right. in their booth right. and i was probably like six suites down and then you'd have like spanish radio english radio but that was it so it was so creepy to see a, a stadium the biggest in the league holds fifty-seven thousand people or whatever it is pitch black and you yeah. walk out to the, the one which is rare because it, it seems so like the lights are always out. on they're not they're yeah. not and the only good thing about the pandemic was that it was so easy to get in and out of Dodger Stadium, whereas normally it takes you an hour. So, but of course we wanted our fans there and it, it's such a game changer to have them in the stadium. And, you know, the players feed off of that, but so do we, you know, and having the crowd that, you know, the, the piped in crowd noise and they did the best they could and the cardboard cutouts and stuff, but there was nothing like having fans back. So when I got to do the, the YouTube game, the all female game to be back on the field and to be able to talk to players without a mask face to face and actually have a conversation. That's the first time I had done that in a year and a half. So um, it, that it's good to, that's good to be back. Yep. You've talked a little bit about wanting to free up that work-life balance, right? Get some of that rhythm going. Uh, talked about having a fiance and those things. Right, yeah, so now- no, it's, uh, it's, you know, I've worked really hard to get to where I'm at. I mean, you have to in this industry that's like, there's no foot off the gas because for every one job, there's a thousand people that want it, right? So yeah. but I just got to the, again, I got into this really late. I was 28 when I went back to school. I've done this for a really long time, um, you know, 16, 17 years. So I'll let you guys do the math, but it was just time, you know, I, I, Chris and I have been together for about five years and, you know, his, his work uh, life changed and his travel schedule changed and it was going to be very difficult for us to see each other. And he has two little girls. Um, one just turned 11 yesterday and one's going to be eight in November and their life is here. And Chris, you know, they are his life as it should be. So it just, you know, once the Dodgers won the World Series, I knew I was never going to be ready to step away, but I was like, you know, how long am I going to do this? So, you know, again, Dodgers were amazing, um, but it was just time for me to go. And now with high heat on MLB Network, I have a very different schedule. You know, we're on one o'clock most days, one o'clock Eastern, and then I can walk my dog. I can make dinner. I can go work out. It's just a very different, you know, you have to make a choice. Um of what type of work-life balance you wanted and, and, or you want. And it was time for me to, to have a little bit more of a, of a focus on my personal life. You can also go out and pursue some passions. Uh, yeah. And part of that is scout and seller. So why don't you tell yeah. me a little bit everybody about that too? Has, I think it's really everybody cool. Everybody has a side hustle, right? Brian? Well, absolutely. Hustle. You're well, looking love, at one right I, now. I love to drink wine. Right. So, um, so scout and seller. Listen, is, Alana, you got to do what you're naturally gifted at. Okay. I believe <laughs> that you got to do. I am naturally gifted at drinking wine. I mean, somebody has to, you know, bear the burden and I'm happy to do it. 
So Scout and Cellar was um, presented to me by a good friend of mine, Emily Jones, who does what I did with the Dodgers. She does it for the Texas Rangers. And she's been with the Rangers for 17 seasons. Like she's very embedded in that community. She's very Texan and she's wonderful. And um, she told us about it. You know, she's been doing this since the inception of the company, which is about four years old, born and, you know, born and raised in Texas. This company is as is Emily, but um, born and raised in Texas. It's owned by a woman. It's just um, biodynamic, biodynamic farming. It's all clean crafted wine. So no added sugars, sulfates, you know, yeah, I love uh, it. preservatives, any of that stuff. So we, while they can't claim health benefits, those people that have experienced headaches with wine don't necessarily have it with this, but that's not, I can't say that. So well, if you're uh, knocking those sulfates out, that's going to have a huge, yeah, make a huge so it's, you know, it's, uh, it's really good wine that comes from very small vineyards um, all over the world and it's shipped right to your door. And I started as a consultant a little over a year ago. I'm wildly competitive. So it's been a lot of fun for me mm -hmm. um, just to kind of see what I can do. There's no pressure. There's no minimums. There's none of that stuff. It is a, you know, it's a multi-level marketing thing, but all of these things are, but I've really enjoyed the community. I've enjoyed the wine. I've enjoyed you know, the extra spending cash, I'm not going to lie. It's allowed me to do stuff to help my family to, you know, just to do some fun things. So I love wine and I happen to be engaged to a guy that, um, loves wine also, but he has very high end wine that, you know, I'm not a lot. He won't let me drink every day. So he owns he owns a, um, a winery called Jack J A C K. It's kind of a double entendre. Um, he owns it with a former coworker of his and they named it after their kids. So Jack is, uh, Jace, Ashlyn, Christian, and Kylie. Oh, nice. But it's also a double entendre like Jack, you know, a, a home run in baseball. Mm -hmm. um, so that's in on top of Atlas Peak in Napa Valley. It's a it's a boutique wine. They own that. And they also own um, Two Old Dogs, which is a, a branch off of Herb Lamb Winery. So they bought that. So they have uh, Jack, which is a lot more boutique, direct to consumer. And then they have Two Old Dogs, which is uh, more widely distributed. So he is into the more fine, fine wine. Um, and I'm into the more, you know, clean crafted, drinkable kind of more of the everyday. Um, so we're definitely a wine family. I have my little section that I'm allowed to drink. And then he's like, you can't drink this till this day. You can't do that. I'm like, I just, I'll just drink what's, this. What's my Wednesday evening wine? Right. Yeah. Like I'm just going to drink it. I'm just going to drink a Scout and Cellar Middle Jane uh -huh. Pinot Noir. Cause that's my favorite. Beautiful. And I know it won't break the bank and I know I won't get in trouble. <laughs> well, tell us where we can, I mean, we gotta be able to scoop some of this up. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, it's at, it's at Scout and Cellar. So it's S-C-O-U-T-A-N-D-C-E-L-L-A-R.com slash my name, Alana Rizzo. So A-L-A-N-N-A-R-I-Z-Z-O. Awesome. Ooh, I already... Uh, Drink up. I need a few gifts for the missiles. Oh. Well, we have that. We have gift boxes and there's free shipping on all gift boxes. Look at that. Oh, Bam. We're, making, we're making things happen. We come a long way since the 16 grand. We have come a long way. I probably spend 16 grand in wine a year. I'm kidding. I don't. I don't make that kind of cash. Not, but if I did not, make We don't judge here. Cash. We do not yeah, judge here. If I did here, make that is, kind of cash, I probably would. We don't judge here. It's <laughs> so good to talk to you, to, to catch up on this journey and to, to hear about all the things. Uh, wish you nothing but continued success, continuing to find that strength of purpose as you're doing now. And, and uh, man, it's just been so fun to catch up. Thank you. I appreciate it. I would do anything for you guys. Again, my love to the family. Look at how far we've come, my friend. But thank goodness for the days of Wichita Falls. No it, it helps shaping, you know, it helps shape everything we've done since then. No doubt. No doubt. Fun conversation. She's Alana Rizzo. I'm Brian Jodis. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.